Good morning, good morning. Good. Congratulations to our brother Kelvin and his recent graduation from Carver. Yeah, 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 yeah. Any other uh, graduates this year? Graduating from anything or anywhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Applause for our graduates. Yeah. We praise God for the grace of education that allows us to further uh, enhance our skills and abilities to make a, a redemptive contribution to our world uh, and the local church. Amen? So uh, we praise God for your work and your accomplishments regardless of what you're graduating from and uh, pray that God will continue to use you and direct your life. Amen? Well, hey, uh, if you would uh, join me as we uh, prepare to add kind of the second layer to our series, Messy. If you weren't here last week, uh, we kind of opened up the series and just kind of looking at how relationships can be messy. And quite honestly, the body of Christ is not exempt from some of the messy aspects of relationship, but the body of Christ also is without excuse for continuing to have messy relationships because the Lord, through his work, gives us the tools and the wisdom that we need to repair some of those messy relationships. And so the book of 1 Corinthians, as you know, its primary contribution to the Bible is to give us a glimpse of what it looks like for a church to be saturated with the gifts. They are coming up short in no way in terms of gifts and abilities and revenue, but they are low on maturity. And so um, there's much for us to take a look at here. We said that the city of Corinth was very much like kind of the uh, city of Las Vegas and some of the vices and sinful influences that many people would have had uh, the um, options to do or experiences with, had been saved from, or even things that people would fly into Corinth, or they didn't fly, but to journey to Corinth uh, to participate in. So um, much to do here in our work in talking about uh, messy and what it it means to have messy relationships to be redeemed. Um, so we'll, uh, we're going to peel off a few more layers this morning as we look at chapters three and four, but first let's pray. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you. We thank you for the opportunity to be with one another. Oh, how sweet it is just to have a few moments of fellowship, but then also, Lord God, there's something awesome you do in corporate worship. But more than just awesome and how we feel, your word tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And it also tells us, oh God, that where we are gathered congregationally in obedience, that there is a particular way that you make your presence available to the body that isn't available in other context. And so we thank you for this blessed context, and we beg that you would meet with us in our time in your word, that we would hear from you. And the way that we hear from you, O oh God, would challenge us, it would change us, it would equip us and make us ready for Monday, the Monday morning mission field. Lord God, whatever it is that we face next week, or whatever it is that we've been going through in our past that needs to be put in better perspective. We also lift up before you, Lord God, Pastor Ryan, that even in this very moment, you are using him to speak over at Mount Vernon. Uh, we pray, O oh God, that you your grace would be with him as well as you are just taking full advantage of the gifts that you have given to the body regardless of what church they may call home. And so we thank you for that and uh, pray your blessing on him and that congregation as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine for just a moment if while you were looking up here on the stage, experiencing the time of being led in praise and worship, if our worship team, the, the individual contributors, uh, found it necessary to let everybody in the audience know, as well as everybody else on the stage know, how good they were. 
Can you imagine for a moment if each individual contributor uh, decided to do just a little something special, not to contribute to the, to the grand narrative or this grand occasion of worship, but they wanted to let everybody else in the room know that they really know how to get down. Can you imagine if, 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 if again, if, if Aaron, right, were to, to, to just kind of gently kind of turn up the keyboard so that as she was giving it to us in the spirit, we really couldn't escape the fact that she was on the stage really playing the keys. Or perhaps she had uh, slid a 20 to somebody up in the sound booth and said, I want you to turn my mic on 12, and I want you to diminish this Jalen because I'm the real leader of this. Can you imagine what a mess it would be? I mean, they were still like singing the same music. They still had the same song, but can you imagine if Julian was like, I'm tired of them keeping me in this cage. I'm coming out, right? And so he's just, God, he just got his hands above his head like we're at some kind of rock concert, and he's breaking the stick right and up there barefooted I mean he's getting it right can you imagine can you imagine our dudes on the on, on the on the guitars right if they were just like you know just leaning back and getting into it and just kind of chuck burying and just kind of hopping across the stage can you imagine probably not but we get a good laugh but more than anything it wouldn't be funny if it really happened it would be crazy and it would, it would ruin the opportunity for worship. Why? Because even though the right words and the right keys and the right tones were being delivered, we know that the right hearts are not in place. It would cease to be worship in spirit and in truth. And so when we see that, this competition in the body, uh, uh, it, it can happen as a transaction of the hand or as a transaction of the heart. But, but, but there are often times when, when our giftedness can become the thing that we want to be the headliner. And this is exactly what is happening in the Corinthian church. So last week when we talked about the saints at Corinth, we saw the primary problem pointed out to us by Paul was that people were aligning themselves in respective groups to say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Jesus. And this was kind of a statement that perhaps I'm doing Christianity in a more grand or more specific way by aligning myself with a leader whose personality I find to be more pleasant or whose gift and skill I find to be more profound. But whatever was going on, it created divisions. It wasn't just them announcing who had facilitated sharing the gospel with them. It wasn't just announcing who had spent some time at their house, maybe discipling them and their families. It was more than just them acknowledging who may have led them to the Lord or even conducted their baptism. It was obvious that it was creating divisions. People were adopting identities within the body based on who they found to be their favorites. And this created divisions or it created cliques as we covered last week. This week, we see Paul further unpack some of the problems at Corinth because this idea of being divided on the basis of who baptized you or who may have led you to the Lord has an even deeper character flaw connected to it. And Paul exposes us to it here in chapters 3 and 4. As we cover chapters 3 and 4, there's two major themes that I want you to think about. I want you to think about in chapter 3, we are called to zoom out. We are called to zoom out. Can you say zoom out? In chapter 4, we're going to be called to zoom in. Can you say zoom in? You see, both of those functions are necessary to get a perfect or a proper picture, right? To zoom out, you get a bigger picture, but to zoom in, you get a more detailed and even a clearer picture of individual contributors. The one of the things that we want to really take a look at today as we kind of peel the theological onion at 1 Corinth or the Corinthian church in this letter is this. 
Our unique contribution to the body is never a cause for boasting, but it is always a call to building. Our unique contribution to the body is never a cause for boasting, regardless of how awesome and upfront or behind the scenes, or regardless of how fabulous it may be, our unique contribution to the body is never a cause for boasting to my fellow man or even to God. It is never a cause for boasting, but it is always a call to building. It is always a call to building, either up one another or building the body or building greater momentum for the gospel. Once again, even for redundancy's sake, I hope it's sticky now. Our unique contribution to the body is never a cause for boasting, but always a call to building. Amen? So let's take a look at these chapters and see exactly how that idea fleshes itself out in the text. When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11 gives us one of the clues as to how the Lord expects us to zoom out. It says, what then is Apollos? Who, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are, are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. And then it says, according to the grace which is given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The first call to zoom out and see the bigger picture is this. Simply put, the gospel lens causes us to look at one another from God's perspective. The gospel lens, if you look at your work in the body of Christ, if we look at one another through a gospel lens, it allows us to see one another from God's perspective. Why do I say this? I want to read this passage again, but with an additional emphasis on something that you cannot escape. In verses 5 through 11, just that short stretch of passages, there are seven moments in which God is announced as the ultimate owner and possessor of whatever is happening. Let's read it again now for clarity's sake, but with a view toward these moments where God obviously owns the text. It says, what then, rhetorical question, what is Paul, what is Apollos, service to whom you believe as number one, what the Lord gave gave to each one. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither is he who plants or he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one receive his gift according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace given, to, given of God uh, to me as a wise master builder, and I laid a foundation that no one else can lay except for that of Jesus Christ. Seven times in six verses, we are told God, God, God is the one who is owning, giving, distributing, and possessing whatever the ultimate outcomes are. And this is the gospel lens. It allows us to zoom out and really see as an individual contributor, it's God who really ought to be getting the glory. When we see this, we understand that it is God who is the possessor and the distributor, which means we are nothing more, not to be diminished, we are nothing more than gardeners and carpenters. We are God's gardeners and carpenters. Did you see that in the passage? Paul says, you guys want to celebrate me and Apollos as apostles, high and lifted up, big wigs in the faith? We are just gardeners and carpenters. I'm a wise master builder. It's actually where we get our word architect. But he says, hey, I'm in here building with you. 
And he says, you are God's field. So if we are gardeners and carpenters, then who are you? You are the garden and you are the construction project. So again, the gospel calls them to zoom out and really put in perspective what's really happening when we use our gifts to contribute to the grand growth of this grand scheme of the body of Christ and give God glory through it. We are gardeners and carpenters. You are the garden and you are the work of construction. But then he, God, is the giver of seven things, faith, growth, the field or opportunity, the gifts, and ultimately Christ in all caps, the foundation. So regardless of the role that we have, we have no reason to boast because regardless of role, we are both recipients and participants at best. I'll say that again. Regardless of the role that we play in the body, we have no reason to boast except to boast in Christ because at the most, at our absolute best, we are participants and recipients. It is God who gives us our respective abilities. We just talked about a couple of our graduates in the room. Trust me, if you were a 4.0, 1600 type of cat on the SAT, right? That is the grace of God working within your life genetically. You were given that. You, didn't, uh, you, you earned the scores, but it was God who created the grace in the context, right? And so, so everything that we have, even if it's not in a churchy context, our gifts, our skills, our graces, and our abilities, they come from God. They come from God. So regardless of the role that we play, we have no reason to boast except to boast in Christ, not boast against one another, because regardless of the role, we are at best recipients and participants in this grand work of God, and it is he who gives us these abilities. Let's move down to verses 12 through 17. In verses 12 through 17, the scriptures read this way. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, Precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. Notice the triplicates, the double triplicates, right? Gold, silver, precious stones, then another set of threes, wood, hay, stubble, right? Or wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become manifest in the day, in all caps, that's the day of the Lord when the Son of Man will come and judge all things, and disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that one has done has been built on a foundation and it survives, uh, he will receive a reward. But if one's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as though through fire. What does this particular lens, this zooming out, tell us about the quality of our work? So number one, the gospel told us that we should zoom out to see one another from God's perspective. We are mere gardeners, waterers, the garden, or the construction at some point in our lives. That's who we are. But we zoom out further and the gospel then tells us here that we should evaluate our work from eternity's perspective. So from eternity's perspective, whether you did a solo, a bass riff, taught Sunday school, preached a great message, gave $10,000 during the local missions offering, helped uh, resurface the church parking lot, lead children's ministry, are the best chief and the head prayer, fills all the cups for communion, bakes the bread manually, your gift is either gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble from eternity's perspective. It has an innate quality that doesn't necessarily come from its appearance, but from the character of the work. The, my, the character of my work, according to the scriptures, will be tested for endurance and not appearance. 
Notice the distinct difference between the three types of work, or these two categories of work. So gold, silver, and precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble, or, or straw. I'm a King James guy. I keep saying stubble. I apologize. So, so, so when the Bible tells us that our work will fall in these kind of categories, and it, it, it does so to illuminate the character of the work and how it responds to heat and testing. Notice that gold gets better under heat. Straw goes bye-bye. And so the character of our work has nothing to do with the volume or who saw it or who applauded it or who celebrates it or who covets it. The character, the internal essence of our work and the goodness of it is based on the heart with which we do it. Are we doing it to boast? Are we doing it to brag? Are we doing it to build? Are we doing it as a function and as an expression of our worship to the Lord God Almighty? This is what determines the character of our work. Therefore, the Bible now rings with all new kinds of significance and volume when you remember that, that phrase, so whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. I remember the first time that I really got punched in the nose with that passage. I was over at a friend's house, and his mom had that uh, passage of Scripture in this humongous card right above the sink so that she could remind people when they were doing the dishes, you better do it as unto the Lord. Stop dropping my cups. Stop slamming them in the sink. Stop, stop under what, you know how you, you know what you do, right? You leave all the silverware last, and then you just look at it and go, that's clean, Right? But do everything as unto the Lord. Even something as mundane as washing dishes, there is a certain character that is connected to my work that the Lord sees that no one else in the room may see. But it is the Lord. The gospel cautions us that from eternity's perspective, the gospel, it cautions us that from eternity's perspective, this is how we should view and evaluate our work. And you know what that will translate to at times? It'll translate to fellow students not understanding why you won't cheat even when there's a guarantee that you won't get caught. You know what that'll translate to? Coworkers wondering why you're so committed to doing exactly what you were told, even though there might be a faster or a other way to do it. Because you have another boss. You're working with a view toward a quality that there are those around you, hey, they may never be able to quantify the quality, but the Lord will because he knows what's happening in your heart. It's you. Have you ever been critiqued for staying late? Why, man, why you, man, he left a long time ago. When he gets out, when, he, when the boss leaves, you should leave too. There ought to be something that restrains us. So this isn't, a, this isn't the doctrine of overtime. This is about, again, the quality of our work should show up in everything that we do, not just our church work, the character and the nature of our gifts. But verse 15 also gives us something else. While 14 says that the quality of my work will be tested for endurance and not appearance, the character of my work, according to verse 15, uh, will not be a test of my salvation or of my inheritance. I want you to see that carefully. This is key. Because there are those who work hard because they believe that they are not only pleasing God, but they are somehow winning God's favor. The Bible wants us to be very clear that the, the volume, the, the type, and the tone, and, 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 and just how public your gift is, has nothing to do with how pleased God is with you. It is not having any impact on your salvation. That is secure. Notice what the Bible says in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, so even for those whose work doesn't meet the, the, the fire test, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer for loss of a reward, but though he himself will be saved, 
but only as through fire. In other words, the scriptures do not mean to convey in this heavy emphasis on the quality of our work that we are somehow going to lose our salvation if we don't put forth the best work. We work from a position of desiring to worship God, not from a position of trying to win something from God. Or if I put it this way, our work is a reflection of our understanding of redemption, not a competition to win human or even God's affirmation. So, 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 so for the person that believes that they're trying to work their way into the kingdom, yes, man, I want to be in first place. I want to be the best. I want to be a superlative. There is a heart that is really a corrupt and a contaminated heart, a fallen heart, a sin-influenced heart that can believe even amongst the redeemed that my work is somehow winning or scoring points with God and it is, it is galvanizing my salvation. And this is not what the Bible teaches. I want to be clear. Understanding, uh, the understanding of, of, of redemption we, our work is actually a part of our worship. Do you understand that in the garden, when sin was introduced, when we introduced sin, one of the foremost things that was affected was our understanding of our work and worship and self-worth? Do you not remember that in the garden, that one of the primary punishments that once sin was introduced was that Adam's work would now be by the sweat of his brow and that the ground would no longer yield with the same degree of efficiency that it had prior to sin? Do you remember that conversation between Adam and God? Also, do you remember a couple of chapters later, Cain and Abel, the great conflict was that one was approved before God and the other was not. One presented before God as an act of worship, something that God says that's not acceptable. And so sin impacts our self-worth, our work, and our worship. So if sin impacts that, all of us are then born into this world with a defective understanding of self-worth because what do we often connect self-work to? Work. And that was never intended to be the connection point. My self-worth was always supposed to be established by, my, by the work of Christ, by the work of God. He made me. I'm valuable because of who I am in him. But we also have this undue connection between work and worship, and that's why the Bible in the New Testament is incessant about reminding us that salvation is not of works, but it is by way of grace, because the human preoccupation is that, God, you owe me. Look at how much I'm working for you. And so work, worship, and self-worth are all damaged by the fall, which means it is our default setting to brag and boast. Now, most of us know that the word bragging and boasting, they're not attractive words. And all of us know and probably despise people who openly brag kind of like this. Man, after today's message, uh, you know, if, I was, if you saw me strutting and said, man, I killed it today, I mean, you would be repulsed. Wouldn't you? I mean, you would be you were like, I can't believe this dude did that. But do you recognize that the same thing happens when we're driving home from work and in the quietness of our heart, no one else is, you know, watching and we're like this, I know I deserve that raise. It's the same thing you say, you killed it today. The human default setting is to boast and to brag about our work, even if you don't have a big audience to boast and brag to. It is a part of our default setting. Now, is there anything wrong with being happy with the outcome of your work, being satisfied with your work, recognizing that God has gifted you to do certain things with your hands or with your heart, with your brain and with your mind? No, not at all. But bragging and boasting and having a higher view of self than we ought to is a human default setting. It is something that has to be actively dealt with by the work of the gospel. 
And so, um, when we think about this, I'll put it this way, it's not going to be on your screen, you just kind of have to kind of remember it. It just, sin, uh, sin warps our understanding of a relationship between work, worth, self-worth, and worship. And therefore, the grace and the gifts and the purpose for which we are created have to be affirmed by the gospel, or else we're constantly looking for that affirmation through other sources. And this is what drives us to compete and to compare and to complain against others and to brag, to boost ourselves up, and to even pull others down, or to say, well, I am of Rod, or I am of Ryan, or I am of Baptist, or I am of Blueprint, or I am of Fishers of Men, or I am of, you know, Calvin, or I am of, you know, Arminius. I mean, pick, pick your community. We always have these ways of trying to tag ourselves, but that only becomes when we, when, when that comes in when we get a point where we start to compare ourselves to others, and then we begin to compete in unholy ways, and then we begin to complain to pull others down. And this is all a part of the fallen, sinned, warped nature of how work, worship, and self-worth have been abused by sin. So we have to be on watch for this. This is like constantly checking the blind spot when you drive. Even the master driver knows that they gotta constantly look over that shoulder. Even if you're 100% confident that there's nothing there, a good driver always looks over the shoulder. They always check the blind spot, sometimes. But that's how insidious sin and that warped nature between our work ethic and our work and worship is. It's like the, it's the great blind spot. Something is always creeping. And it seems like the one moment that I stop checking is the one moment that something is there. And so we need to zoom out. But the Bible goes further to tell us that not only do we need to zoom out to get the bigger picture, view one another from God's perspective, we're just all collective gardeners and carpenters, and we're just all collectively part of God's grand construction and God's grand project and something that God, great, that God is building, but he's the one giving the gifts, the grace, and the glory, and the growth, and the, and the faith, and the foundation. We zoom out, we see that. But then we are called by chapter four to actually zoom in. In chapter four, there are four verses that really call us to zoom in, and I'm gonna help you see them. In 1 Corinthians chapter four, beginning with verse one, uh, the Bible says, this is how we should regard, or how you should consider, one should consider us. He says, this is how I want you to look at us, to consider us. When you, when you peer at us, this is how I want you to consider us. We're servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may do what? Learn by us, not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up uh, in favor or against one another. And then in verses uh, uh, 9 through 13, he goes further. For I think that God has exhibited this in us, apostles last, as we are um, all like men sentenced to death. And we'll, we'll get into more detail in that passage later. And then finally, there's another one, verse 16, that says, and because on the premise of all this, I want you to imitate us. So when we zoom out, Paul says, view your work and your fellow workers and what God is doing in you from eternity's perspective. Get the big picture. But then he says, now I want you to zoom in. You want to create celebrities out of your apostles? You want to make celebrities out of people who, who, who were responsible for your salvation? You want to make celebrities and you want to hit your wagons to my personality or Paul's personality or to Cephas' personality? Then consider us. Look at us carefully. Consider us. Learn from us. Look at what God is doing in us, and then I want you to imitate us. Now, let's look at exactly what are the things that are happening in the lives of the apostles as you zoom in on their lives in greater detail. 
So going back to this first verse, it says, I want you to consider us. Well, how exactly in verse one of chapter four, he says, I want you to consider us. Regardless of how you think of us, regard and consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mercies. We're servants and stewards. Now, if you are a servant and a steward, you get your primary commendation from the evaluation of the one who assigned you and who gave you those things that you're stewarding over. In other words, we are stewards of God's mysteries. Regardless of how deep a preacher you thought Paul or Apollos or Rod or Ryan are, none of the deep things we share, if they're really true, are ours. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. We are servants of Christ. So regardless of how awesome a force gospel hope becomes within the grand scheme of Christianity in the eastern suburbs, we were servants at best. Servants at best. In the Corinthian church, we are called to view the Apostle Paul single-handedly responsible for having authored 13, debatable 14 of the 27 New Testament epistles. And he says, view me as a servant at best. We're servants and stewards. And if we are servants and stewards, our faithfulness, our grade, our excellence doesn't come from your judgment. It comes from God's deeming us as being faithful or not. Has anybody ever been stewarded a rental car? Yeah, yeah, you've been stewarded. Has anybody ever rented a car? I know you don't consider yourself as stewarding from Enterprise or Avis. What is the thing that you do when you leave, before you go and when you come back? You do that walk around. And they're looking for those dings and chips that are the size of a quarter or greater than the size of a quarter. Why? Because it is a stewardship. It's not your car. We're going to let you use it. You can do whatever you want. They are not watching you. Some of them do because we've gotten calls like, hey, your employee is doing like 80 in this Mustang. Come get them. But, but the bottom line is it, it, when, when, you, when you're stewarding a vehicle that's not yours, there's this quality check. Like how many miles did it have when you left? How many miles did it have when you bring it back? What kind of damage does it have? Did you bring it back full, Right? That shows that you are a faithful steward. And this is what God does. When we bring back these Buicks or however you consider yourself, right? <laughs> you know, these Impalas, when we bring back these lives of ours for inspection, the Lord will test our faithfulness. How did you bring this thing back based on what I gave you? Because we are stewards and we are servants at best. And so Paul says, consider us, regard us as, zoom in on our lives. We're the ones that you're trying to make celebrities and big shots out of, and we see ourselves as servants and stewards. And then he goes further. He says, learn from us, in verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another against the other. He says, look at me and Apollos. Do you see us fist bumping or, 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 or you know, giving, you know, bigging each other up? Do you see us chest bumping each other, talking about who's the best or who's the better apostle? If you hear any conversation in the scripture, it is the apostle who might be considered the greatest among them trying to serve the hardest. Learn from us. You really want to make celebrities out of us? Let us be your curriculum on how to do this Christian life. Look at us. Consider us deeply. We don't brag and boast about our work. Why should you? And then look at this one. He says, look at what God is displaying in us. Look at what God has exhibited in us in 1 Corinthians verses, uh, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. This is powerful. I, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world 
to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To present to the present hour, we are hungry and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We are buffeted and we are homeless. We labor with our labor and our work with our own hands. We are reviled, but yet we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like scum, <laughs> like the scum of the world, the, re the refuse of all things. Disrepute and refuse, right? Like when you use that and you're talking about yourself, like what is going on here? But he says, this is how the world has viewed us. Look at what's going on. But despite all of these negative attributes, at no time do you see us veer from choosing to bless, to serve, to labor, and to work. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not celebrities. There is absolutely no reason for you to boast and brag in us. If you want celebrity acclaim, here's what you're about to sign up for to be scum, to be disrepute, to be poor, to be poorly clothed, to have to work, and then to, to turn around and to speak kindly to others while they totally dishonor and disrespect you. The Apostle Paul here lays out this multi-layered uh, 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 defense against anyone boasting and bragging or trying to even emulate or to become an apostle. He's not trying to suppress their faithfulness in the faith, but if you want to make someone an icon, they're saying, we're the wrong ones. Make Christ the icon. Because it is only in Christ that people who have been crushed, disrespected, dishonored, and considered to be scum still toil and labor with such a great degree of energy and effort. Only eternity could fuel that kind of energy. I mean, how many of you right now are contemplating quitting your job because your boss just didn't say, nice job on that report, Susan? I'm sorry, this applies to everybody in the room. Susan just walked out. I'm kidding. <laughs> but how many of us crave the affirmation of those that we report to? And in, in, in so many different contexts, man, can you believe Pastor Raw walked by me and didn't even look up? Think about how often from our fellow man and from others to whom we esteem highly, we want their acclaim, we want their affirmation. And the Bible says that's not where you get your worth. That's not what makes your work good. And we ought to, we ought to uh, celebrate. We ought to, to, to give credit where credit is due. I'm not, I'm not slamming that. But what I'm saying is how easily we are prepared to unhook and turn in resignations when we don't feel like men are appreciating what we do. Not that we're being punished or abused or neglected or having our paychecks taken away. We just want people to just say nice stuff to us and recognize our good work. And we're ready to walk out the door. Have you seen any of this in you? So then we are called finally in verse 16. He says, hey, in light of all this, imitate us. He says, imitate us. You like us? You want to tell everybody that you're of us? Then imitate us. Bring it on. Serve like we do. Go hard in the paint for the gospel. Serve one another like your lives depend on it. Put this, ha have the same mindset that Christ did. I mean, can you see the connection between what we call the great kenosis over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5? Jesus Christ, who uh, uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
right, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And then like seven different times below that, the Bible tells us how he took upon him the form of a servant, became in the likeness of men, became obedient, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, he received the name that is above every name. This is, the, that was the mantra of Christ. The height of my position determines the intensity of my service. I need to, I need to go further down in how I serve one another. And then look at what the apostles do. We are hungry, we are starved, we are disrepute, we are fools for Christ's sake, we are dishonored. That says that we need to continue to serve harder. Not that we deserve a promotion, and if we get one, it'll be from God and from God alone. And so when it comes to our relationships with one another and relationships with leadership and personalities in particular, let us be very careful to zoom out and view them from the perspective of God. And let us be careful to zoom in and recognize that individual contributions that I make, this is my contribution of my work is a form of my worship to God, even if it's being done in the secular marketplace. Now, why do I need the gospel in order to apply or to implement any of this in my life? Because it is the gospel that actually puts in perspective two major questions that we always have about life. Why and why not? The gospel answers the great why of why are you here? You exist in your very particular and unique season, time, and again, gender, gifts, crafts, and skills. You exist for the glory of God. There is a very specific way that God wants to be glorified. And the specificity of that glory is revealed when Christ is at work within you, redeeming your work ethic, redeeming your self-worth, redeeming your sense of worship, so that everything that you do, you do it as unto the Lord, and he becomes your boast. And why not? The gospel answers the great why not of life too. Why didn't I get this gift or why didn't I get that gift? Because the sovereign Lord says, I am deepest and most and, uh, and have the greatest pleasure in your life the way it is right now if you serve me from that vantage point. What God is building in the body is a broad billboard for the world to see all hues, all heights, all types, all gifts, people who were janitors, people who were journeymen, people who were CFOs, people who were CEOs, people who planted churches, people who water churches, people who discipled a small group of women on some place on the map that we can't name and her name we will never know. God wants to be equally glorified through that life as he will some of the biggest personalities in Christianity. And he he wants to showcase that up for all eternity so that when the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll does so, we throw our crowns before him and go, worthy is the lamb. That's why he does it. So that we will crown him with many crowns, regardless of how and why we got our crown. This is why God did it. This is why he did not do what he does in our respective lives in terms of the gifts and the assignments that we have. And so we desperately need the gospel because there are people here today that are feeling more highly of themselves than they ought to, and the gospel is going to bring some great level setting. And there are those who feel deeply defeated, and the gospel wants to bring you up to let you see yourself the way God does. We need to zoom out. We need to zoom in. But in all things, we need to know this. Our unique contribution to the body is never a call for boasting, but it is always a call to building. So today's application is this. If you are a person who is not actively building, you're, you're, you are enjoying um, um, great preaching, time of worship, and times of fellowship, but you've said to yourself, man, I don't see where I necessarily fit within the grand scheme of what God is building. I'm begging you to zoom out and to zoom in. I'm asking you to think deeply, pray carefully about where God would have you to serve in the local church or to serve in the body of Christ, period, right? 
Or if you say, well, well Pastor Rod, I see something, you know, somehow way I want to serve, but I don't see that as an office or an institute or as a thing or as a platform here. Come talk to us. But say to yourself that understand that serving or getting to work with your respective gifts is not just a function of church protocol and, and needed volunteers, but it is a function of the great connection between your gift and God's glory. Your self-worth, which is established by Christ, but your work, which flows out of that. Lord, I want to glorify you. You saved me for something. I want to glorify you out of what you saved me for. So let's look for opportunities to serve. How can we go to work and how can we deploy our gift? I know in our culture, the word gift uh, rings of something shiny and fancy. Your gift may simply be to constantly encourage and to pray for others. But what you do, do it as unto the Lord. Don't do it half-heartedly, do it wholeheartedly. Your gift may be to, to truly to come alongside someone in ways that don't necessarily show up on a, uh, on a team or in a respective category, but do it and do it as unto the Lord and do it wholeheartedly, recognizing that your respective gift is intended to build and not necessarily be a cause to boast. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you today and we thank you and praise you for level setting. Those who think more highly, bringing us to a, into a right orientation with the gospel. Those who think more too lowly of ourselves, bringing us up. And also putting in perspective, Heavenly Father, we leaders, those of us who stand up front, that our contribution to the body is no more boastworthy or no more reason to boast toward one another than anyone else's gift. But we all boast in Christ and looking at what you have done in us. I ask, O oh, Holy God and Father, um, if there are those who are looking to your gospel or looking for a way to redeem their understanding of work and self-worth, that their hearts are curious about your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would be courageous in seeking him as a savior and understanding that the gospel isn't just a spiritual conversation. It isn't just a, a church conversation but it has mammoth implications all over our life and even the way we show up in the, in the workplace. We give ourselves over to you totally. In Jesus' name, amen.